Hello and welcome to New City Church's podcast. We're a small non-denominational church in Nashville, Tennessee, practicing the way of Jesus together. For more information on who we are, what we do, how you can get involved, and resources for your faith, check out newcitynash.com. We hope and pray this message blesses you. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as I told you, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to come here and sit in your presence this morning as we reflect on what it is that your son did for us, as we um, recognize that we are sinners and that we um, need you in our everyday lives, Lord. I pray that you would just um, speak to each of us in our hearts and in the places that we're in this morning, that you would just um, penetrate truth into our lives, um, into our hearts. Trey, as he speaks your truth this morning, that you would just speak through him as we celebrate Easter morning. In Jesus' name that I pray, amen. 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 This story brings up an interesting question. What do we do in the aftermath of Easter? Now, if you're reading along this story in a physical Bible or even a digital Bible, you may see a little footnote, or say footnote, it's usually in the actual text. Something to the extent of the most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude with verse 16, 8. Later manuscripts add one or both of the following endings. That may mean nothing to you, but I find it very interesting that the earliest manuscripts of this story end with, they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Yet, you and I are here, 2,000 years later, talking about the thing that apparently they were too afraid to say anything about. We learned from other gospel accounts that they did tell other people. Uh, we also, there's different theories as to why this may have been the original manuscript. Some people say that uh, it just meant to end like this and kind of make you wonder and question, well, what, what happened next? There's an empty tomb. The Gospel of Mark is considered to be the first of the Gospels of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that were written and put into circulation. And it's very fast-paced. If you read it, there's a lot of immediately's Basically, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And throughout the story, the apostles are depicted as not fully getting who Jesus is, seeing him as a teacher. And then he does things that are like, well, this is not just a normal teacher. He's a miracle worker. He's a prophet, moving on to son of man, son of David, and eventually, I would argue, after he resurrected, son of God, an unfolding view of who Jesus is. So just to start off, if you're here today and you're like, I don't know fully what I believe about Jesus. Is he actually the son of God? See, the Savior, the Messiah, is that him? Praise God if that's where you are. But if you're like, you know what, I think I'm just at the place where, like, he's a really good teacher, and it seems like he did some really powerful things. Praise God. Take that as an invitation. 
for the Lord to reveal more of himself to you. Now, some people think, uh, like one of my favorite New Testament theologians named N.T. Wright thinks that maybe part of the scroll or, the, or like the last column of this was ripped off. And so we have these other endings that depict something more similar to the other Gospels, that Jesus actually physically appeared to people, that he was with people. We learned other, other places for 40 days, eventually ascended into heaven, but he physically like walked out of the grave. But I love the way that this original ending ends, because for you, I'll speak for me, I guess, for me, the way that it ends with they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened is often where my faith starts to stop. That I hear about the resurrection, the good news of Jesus and what he's done, the gospel, but because I'm too afraid, I tell no one. Have you ever felt like that? Has it been difficult to go and share the good news of what Jesus has done? But as someone brought up in our growth group the other day, they were saying if this actually happened and Jesus like physically appeared to them, we learned from church history that almost all of the apostles died because of their faith. The person in our growth group was like, well, yeah, well, no wonder they did that. Because they saw this guy, Jesus, resurrect from the grave with nail wounds in his hands. That's remarkable. For me, because I've grown up in Christian circles, it can easily become something trite that I say that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture and that he was buried and that he rose, right? I can say that stuff and it feels like nothing. As I was thinking about what would the Lord have us do in the aftermath of Easter and how can we communicate this story and tell this story and maybe in a way that may not feel as trite, first I just want to invite you to picture it anew. We quickly move from Good Friday to Easter. I mean, even just like for most of us, right? You may have had the day off on Friday. Maybe you went to a Good Friday service. We didn't have one. Maybe you just thought about it briefly. But think about the apostles being left and their Messiah, their rabbi was gone. They weren't really expecting this. Now we can look back at Jesus' teaching and see, well, yeah, he told them and they just weren't, they didn't get it. Imagine being in their shoes, what you would have felt. So what I want to do today is I want to tell us a tale of four gardens. Four gardens that we find in the Bible. It's kind of a big high picture. We're going to stop in a couple places in the Bible looking at gardens throughout the scriptures. And to kind of set the scene for that, I want to look at John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. It says this. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they'll produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain or abide in me, and I will remain or abide in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. We're going to come back to this, but for now, I want you to just carry with me this theme of the vine, God's work throughout the course of human history. So the first garden we come to is called the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything from top to bottom, all of reality, everything that you see and that you don't see, God made it. I was listening to a book this week by Neil deGrasse Tyson called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Besides the fact that I didn't understand half the stuff that he was saying, 
what I kept thinking about is just the sheer amount of things that collectively we know about science, about the universe, to me indicates that there is something incredibly powerful that made all of this. That's not to say all of the incredible amount of things that we don't know and how often we are proven wrong in the things that we do know. All of it. The tiniest thing, the biggest thing. God made it. And I'm not a scientist, but the tiniest of these things that were different when it comes to how the universe works, if one little thing was off, we would cease to exist. But yet God created all of it. And he didn't just make it where we could live. He made it beautiful. He made it pretty. He made it, at least parts of it, it seems enjoyable, almost transcendent, where we get to encounter God or experience something by being in nature and seeing something so beautiful that it indicates that there's something bigger out there than just me, than just you. And God made everything, and he saw that it was good. We were told that in the first five days, but on the sixth day, he made humans in his image, and he saw that it was very good. And God planted a garden in this place called Eden. Eden is a word that at least some people think means delight. This place where people could have perfect relationship with God and one another, with one another and creation. I mean, think about if, I don't know if there were lions then or dinosaurs, probably, but like, think about it. They weren't afraid of them. They weren't eating them in the Garden of Eden. That's pretty cool. I feel like that's every little boy's dream to be able to hang out with a T-Rex or something, you know, and it would be scary. Eden, that's where God made, I mean, put these humans, and he gave them instructions to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. In other words, to expand the bounds of the Garden of Eden, to make heaven on earth. But if you know the story, they didn't stay in the garden. Mankind, humankind was deceived, and Adam and Eve took and ate from this tree, from one tree that they were told not to eat tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And growing up, I was always like, that's a really weird requirement of all the things that could get you kicked out from where God wants you to be. It's like, hey, don't eat this cookie, you know? I'm like, well, of course I'm going to eat that cookie. Like after a couple years, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how long they were there. I'm going to eat the cookie. But it's more than just like eating an apple. Also probably wasn't an apple, but that's besides the point. It's more than that. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil is meaning they chose to say that I, we, can decide what is good and what is bad. As opposed to trusting God's ways for what is good, what leads to flourishing, humans chose what we think is good and what we think leads to flourishing. And in some ways, the rest of the biblical story, for the most part, we see what happens when humankind choose what they think will be good. We're actually told multiple times where humans saw that something was good and then they did the thing that they thought was good and it turned out really, really badly. How many times have you thought something was a good idea only to find out that it was a terrible idea? I used to be a youth pastor and working with, particularly with like middle school and high school boys, your prefrontal cortex, which is part of your brain that helps with decision making, is not fully developed until you're 25. And I would often notice that these guys would do things that you're like, Bro, what were you thinking? Like, why were you throwing a baseball, like, and trying to hit it in a 10 by 10 room with a massive window right across from you? Like, what were you thinking? They're like, oh, yeah, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't thinking. I'm like, yeah, clearly the window's broken now, so we're going to have to go and fix this. 
And of course, I've done plenty of things like that too. But in some ways, the rest of the story is indicative of what happens when you and me choose what we think is good, what we think is best, instead of trusting God's ways is what are best. We will try to make things happen in our own strength, but ultimately, we will fall short. We'll miss the mark. We will sin. We do sin. Natural dispensation, in fact, I would say, is to sin, to turn away from God. But the story doesn't end here. We, we keep going forward, and there's a bunch of gardens that we run into in the Old Testament. In the story of Noah's ark, Noah goes up on the mountain at the end of the flood, and he plants a garden up there in some ways symbolizing this Eden place. We see gardens pop up in Abraham's story. We see gardens pop up in Joseph's story. Uh, in some ways, things with Moses' story. We see them pop up throughout the story. But we jump forward, and eventually we get into Jesus of Nazareth, into another garden called the Garden of Gethsemane, which is one that we talk about during Holy Week. And the Garden of Gethsemane, this, this story that we learn about Jesus takes place right after this thing called the Last Supper, which is where we get the practice for communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And in this supper, Jesus invites all of his apostles. They're sitting together, including Judas, who's the one who's going to betray him. And he institutes this sacrament called the Eucharist or Lord's Supper. And he says, this bread, he takes it and he blesses it and he says, this is my body. He tells them to take and eat it and do it in remembrance of me. And then he says, this wine, or the fruit of the vine, is my blood. To take and drink it in remembrance of me. And in some ways, is a reversal of what happened in Genesis 3, where man and woman chose to take and eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Jesus instructs his disciples to take and eat of what he offers, a new form of life. Their ways lead to death, but take and eat or take and drink of what God has to offer, and it is abundant life. We try to make things happen in and of ourselves, and in some ways it's like a bungee cord. We try to run towards doing all the right things, and inevitably the things that I thought were right when I was 15 turned out not to be so right. Pops me right back. You try to find your worth in your work or success or money. What happens when you get there? It doesn't fix the problem that you have. But we get to this story in the Garden of Gethsemane after this supper, and we're told that Jesus goes in there to pray, and he tells his disciples in Mark 14, 34, that my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. We're told that he sweat so hard that it was like drops of blood coming off of him. I'm a sweater, but I don't know that I've ever sweat that bad, and especially not in grief and agony like Jesus felt. Then he prayed to the Father to take this cup from me. Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus took our sin upon himself. What I want to tell you with this is if you look around in your life, if you look around in the world, and everything seems to be marked of death and evil and destruction, in some ways kind of is. But God has not forgotten us in our sin and pain. And in this story, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know what's to come, and we're going to get to those gardens, but we can't gloss over it that God does not forget us in the midst of our sin and pain. And what we're going to see is here is where Jesus is betrayed or given up uh, to be arrested, tortured, beaten, mocked, ultimately crucified. And we get this story of Good Friday, which I posted something on Facebook, and I think it uh, was my mom commented on that. She says, it's hard for me to think of it as good. 
Good Friday, when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, how is that good? But what Jesus is doing is he's taking, he's doing a bunch of reversals to everyone else's things that they thought would work. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil that led to death, Jesus takes another tree that was very much representative of death, the Romans' worst form of capital punishment that was not only excruciatingly painful but remarkably humiliating. From what I understand, usually it was, or often it was that people were even crucified naked. I mean, this was horrendous by all accounts, not just physically, emotionally, spiritually, I mean, all of it, just excruciating. Jesus took another tree that was representative of death, and what did he turn it into? A beacon of hope, of life, of resurrection. What they thought was their best trick has got nothing on him. Symbol of his power and his victory a lot of us have the question, why would a good God allow us to suffer so much? But Good Friday asks another question. Why would a good God choose to suffer on our behalf? Easter comes after Good Friday. And we're told in the Gospel of John that after Jesus was crucified that there was a tomb that was, guess where it was? A garden. And when they go to find him, Several of these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome and others, perhaps, they didn't find Jesus. And they were told by someone in dazzling white, he is not here, he is risen. He's not here. And we could dive into a whole lot of things of why this would not have been expected. Jesus in some ways, reversing once again the curse where it was told to humankind that you are dust and to dust you'll return. Jesus went into the ground, into the cave, and then came out with life. Death thought it won. Did not. Walked out of the tomb. Jesus brings life out of death, and he offers abundant life to you today and forever, that we are dead in our sins, apart from God, but God offers us abundant life for all those who trust in him as their Lord and Savior. And I was thinking about this garden imagery. There's probably some people, I know there's some people in here who have a green thumb and things grow. I haven't really tried to make plants stay alive just because I'm pretty confident I would do a really bad job. But I remember as a kid, we had goldfish a couple times. I don't know if you ever had goldfish as a kid, like not the snack, but like the fish, literally never could keep those things alive. We would get them, of course they're like 25 cents, but they would die within a day or two. And in some ways, my attempts at life were like that. No matter how much I try to do and keep it alive, ultimately it just leads towards death. But God, like Ezekiel says, makes dry bones live. God takes what was death and turns it into life. He takes what was ashes and makes it beautiful. And he can do that in your life. He can rescue you. He can turn what was meant for evil and turn it into something good. But this isn't the last garden that we see in the Bible. Because we're, we're left here with this empty tomb, right? Uh, maybe someone in here has seen like a dream or something of the resurrected Jesus. I've never seen that. I live in the aftermath of Easter. I've experienced the Holy Spirit, and I've seen God do amazing things. But we're told that this is not the end of the story either. There's a garden in the new city that God is making found in the book 
of Revelation, chapter 22, literally the last book of the Bible, jumping from the first page all the way to the last. Then the angel showed me a river, the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. One day, for those that follow Jesus, death will be no more. Out of all the places that looked like only death would come, God springs forth life. And Jesus will reign forever. So the question is for you and me, in between Easter and the new garden, what do we do? How do we live? If you find yourself like we learn in the Gospel of Mark, being afraid and not telling anyone, what do we learn from history? What did they do? They told people. Obviously, right? That seems to be clear. So the first question is for you, have you received this abundant life that Jesus offers? This life doesn't come from going to church. Maybe you can get a foretaste of it, but that's not what gives it to you. It doesn't come from trying to do enough good things. It doesn't come from wealth or success or what people think about you. It comes ultimately from trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, from repenting or turning from your sins and trusting in him as the King and Lord of your life. Have you received it? Because he offers it to you freely. And if you have received it, one of the next steps that Jesus invites us into is through something called baptism. It's symbolic of being buried with Christ and raised to a whole new type of life. And I can't help but think of this imagery of the garden and watering a garden, how important that is. Baptism, yes, is a symbol, but it's also something really powerful that happens there, something mysterious that the Lord is doing. And if you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus or believer, we'd love to talk with you about what that looks like. But maybe you're here and you're like, I have received that, or I think I have. I'm not really sure. What do I do? I want to go back to John 15 with this word abide, remain in him. Everything you do to constantly be with him, mindful of him, to recognize his presence with us constantly. Being a follower of Jesus means abiding in him and trusting in him. And then we learn later in the Gospel of John that following Jesus means becoming like him and doing what he says. Following him and keeping his commandments. In other words, following Jesus and being a Jesus follower, submitting to him as your Lord and King and Savior is not just an intellectual thing where you can cognitively say, I believe Jesus died and rose again. We're told elsewhere, even the demons believe and tremble. Do you trust him as your king? Does every aspect of your life look like that? The answer is no, it doesn't yet. We're being made to look more and more like Jesus. We learn in here in John 15 that he prunes us. I can't help but think of weeds. We worked, a, I say we worked a little bit yesterday in the in our garden, Anna worked in the garden. I hung out with the baby because I was not wanting to do the, <laughs> do the pulling the weeds and stuff. But we have weeds creep up in all areas. And my guess is that you have weeds creeping up in your life too. Maybe in your yard. It's up Travis's yard. It's my neighbor. His, his looks so much better than ours. <laughs> it's actually grass. What are the weeds in your life that the Lord needs to prune? They may be sprouting up even faster, seemingly, than the life. 
following Jesus means becoming like him and doing what he says. And then my last challenge for you would be, I think that as followers of Jesus, we're called to plant and water gardens. I don't necessarily mean that literally. If so, I am deeply in sin and I apologize. I have not actually planted a garden. (laughs) But what I mean by that is in every aspect of your life, are you seeing the places that seem dead, seem to be full of weeds or death where life could never spring forth? And are you partnering with God and bringing life? Telling people the good news of what Jesus has done and the life that comes from him and him alone. If you're in a profession pertaining to medicine, are you partnering with God in healing, bringing life where it seemed like there was death? Are you providing words of encouragement where it seemed like that all that was there was discouragement? Are you providing hope and joy? Or even are you being, in a sense, like what Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Are you being with people in the midst of their pain? I think as followers of Jesus, we're called to partner with God in planting gardens. And then John 15, 12, we learn that what it means to follow Jesus, a big part is that our life is marked by love. Love isn't just tolerance or acceptance. It's more than that. It's supposed to be leading to the flourishing of people. Is your life marked by the radical love of God and of neighbor? So in between the grave and the garden, what do you do? The first question is, have you received gift that Jesus offers of abundant life that comes only from him have you received that what's the next step that he's calling you to do and if you have when are you going to start telling people it's really 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 good news and as I was thinking even praying about Easter you know, it, Easter is I mean every week I want to preach on the gospel but Easter you know uh, it's so much pressure Uh, to be honest, right? Like, how do I communicate how good the gospel is? And what I keep coming back to is I can't. I cannot at all. When I was in college, I went to a church briefly where they seemed to preach on the gospel every single week. And I remember thinking, okay, like, I got that part. Christ died, Christ rose, like, gifts of sins, like, all that stuff. I get that. Cool. We're good. But it was at that church that I realized I never fully understand the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. It never fully permeates into who I am and the gospel pertains to every aspect of our existence. So my challenge for you is to pray, to ask the Lord to help you to more deeply understand. And I cannot fully communicate how good it is because I don't fully get it. And even if I did, I couldn't communicate it because it's far better. So I pray that you sit in that today. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer and response. I just want to give you a chance to uh, deal with things with God. Um, and what I'm going to do, too, is if you're somebody who doesn't know Jesus, is interested in taking that next step with him, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Prayer is not magic. Uh, it's not what Jesus is the one who saves you, not your magical words. That's not how it works. But I want to lead you in that. Um, if you're someone who considers yourself a follower of Jesus and you've never taken that next step in your faith of getting baptized and you're interested in that, I'd love to talk with you after about what that looks like. So if you would, uh, bow your heads and uh, pray with me. God, I just want to thank you so much that you bring forth life where it seems like life could never come. Uh, And God, I know that there's even things that some of us in this room are presently walking through or dealing with that just seem to reek of death. They stink. (laughs) 
that they seem to permeate every aspect of our existence. And God, I pray that you would remind us that you're a God who's with us, who's not forgotten us, a God who's well acquainted with sorrow and grief. And Lord, I pray that you would bring forth life and life abundant out of places that we never thought it could come. And uh, if you're in the room today and you're interested in taking a next step uh, in giving your life over to Jesus, um, I'd love to just invite you to make eye contact with me um, in a way of just taking a step um, in that. And, and Lord, I, um, I pray for anyone here too who's interested in just whatever that next step looks like for them, Lord, that you would give them um, grace uh, to do that. And uh, God, for all of us in this room, I pray that you help us to abide in you and all that we do. Lord, I pray that you would work in miraculous ways in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged and challenged to tell the good news about what you've done because Lord, it has changed everything. My life's different uh, because of you. I mean, Lord, I know so many others in this room, their lives are totally different because of you. And God, I just pray in Jesus' name that you will work in a really powerful way um, in and through us. And Lord, just thank you so much for your resurrection. <laughs> Lord, I don't get it. <laughs> I really don't. You're so beautiful and powerful and majestic and glorious and incredible. God, I pray that today as we celebrate with our church family and then maybe with friends or family later, Lord, that in all that we do, it's just a foretaste of what's to come when we get to spend eternity with you for all of those who follow you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we pray. Thanks for tuning in to New City Church's podcast. We hope today's message blessed you. For more information on who we are, what we do, how you can get involved, and some resources for your faith, check out newcitynash.com. But until then, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance towards you and give you peace. Amen.